Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today my guest is Alex Budak. Now, Alex, you're not exactly next door to me today. You're you're on the other side of the United States of America. So, Alex, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Kevin, thank you so much for having me. Alex, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I'm born and raised in the Silicon Valley Bay Area, uh, but I've traveled around the world quite a bit, lived in a few different countries. And as I think about my identities, my work identities, I'm a social entrepreneur, so someone who combines sort of the traditional business world with the work of impact to combine the two. I spent some time living in Scandinavia, where I ran an incubator for social entrepreneurs based in Stockholm, Sweden. And then now I find myself as a lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley, where I have an absolute dream come true. I teach a class called Becoming a Changemaker. I teach it to undergraduates, to graduate students, to executives. And I often find myself so inspired from my teaching that I can't sleep the night after I've taught just because I'm so lit up from the energy in the classroom. Oh, that's and, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So you've come from a business background into academia. So that, that's a breath of fresh air. You're, you're not talking about business change from a theoretical point of view. You're talking about change from a, a very, very practical, been there, done it, got t-shirt point of view. Got the t-shirt and all the scars to, to go along with it. Yeah, it's something I think students appreciate is bringing in the practical experience because it's one thing to understand the theory, why things should work. But then, as Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And you've got to be a practitioner to know how you roll with things when things don't go exactly as expected and have some of those hard-won wins and hard-won losses um, that go along with just doing things with being in the trenches. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you've got a book coming out all about change, putting all of this experience down onto paper. And this podcast's coming out for, on the 13th of September, which by some strange coincidence, as if we'd almost done some of that, that planning, <laughs> uh, is the same day as your book comes out. So becoming a change maker, an actionable, inclusive guide to leading positive change at any level. Wow. Tell me some more about that, Alex. Oh, yeah. This is a, a dream come true to be teaching, uh, to be putting the teaching into this book. So it's the book written for people who see themselves wanting to lead change, but maybe feel stuck, have tried to lead change, but felt frustrated with the scale and the pace of change, or people who just feel overwhelmed by seeing how quickly the world and our companies are changing all around us and feeling like they need a guide to help keep up. In it, I try to teach three things, help you develop a changemaker mindset, so how you see the world, how you see change, and what your role inside of it is. Changemaker leadership, how do you galvanize change? How do you lead and inspire others to come along with you? And what does leadership look like today that's maybe different from how it has been in years and decades past? And then finally, changemaker actions. As you mentioned, I'm a practitioner. So how do you take these ideas and how do you put them into practice? How do you take those crucial but really challenging first steps of change? And how can we make change this big, scary, nebulous topic and make it feel a little bit more approachable, a little bit more achievable by each of us? I know that action bit is the thing that I, I'm really keen to find out more about. And 
recently we we've got something in gross cfo we run every or most tuesday lunchtimes called future finance functions and i run a series for future finance functions going through cotter's change book and really taking a be a chapter a month and going through it end to end but interspersing it with some of my change experience from 20 years of management consultancy because certainly one of my criticisms of that book is that the theory's there but there's very, very little. How do you do this in practice in there? So, wow. But let, let's start off. Change maker mindset. Tell me some more about that, Alex. Yeah. So, of course, for people listening, especially CFOs, you might look at what I'm teaching and say, oh, that, that sounds a little bit fuzzy. And so I, I, hear, I hear where you're coming from. So I've started to do the first ever longitudinal study to understand how change makers develop over time. It's a study called the Changemaker Index. And in it, I look at how do changemakers develop? What are the key skills that people need? And looking at a diverse cross-section of individuals, what are some of the themes that the most successful changemakers have? And across all the data, the thing that I see is that the most successful changemakers have a willingness and an ability to question the status quo. Now, that may sound obvious, of course, but the data show that in order to be a changemaker, you've got to see the world as it is, but be able to imagine a different path forward to be able to imagine the way things could be slightly different, could be slightly improved, and then have that mindset which says, not only can it be different, I could be the one that actually helps to make this different. It doesn't mean you do it all by yourself, but it means you have this mindset that sees things in the world, in companies, and goes, you know, I can see a better way, and let's go forward with that. Mm. So that's, that's easy to say if you've got a problem, and you've got to sort the problem out and get a solution. But that, that this sounds as if it's going beyond that, that perhaps a, a problem hasn't manifest, but you've, you've got a vision for, well, okay, it's all right as it is now, but it could be way better. Is that what we're saying? That's right. So there's all kinds of different levels of change where we could look at. You know, yes. One example I love is uh, the Swedish engineer, Lila Olgren. So this was back working for the Swedish telecom agencies way back in the day, back before mobile phones were even a thing. And so she and her team were trying to figure out how do we get these mobile phones, at this point, car phones, to work. And they kept running into the same problem. They were trying to make the mobile phone, the car phone work exactly the same way that the landline did. So you uh, dial each number at a time, and then you send it off to the signals. Um, what they found is that it kept dropping off, that they would get maybe one or two numbers, and then they would lose connection. And they kept trying to make things work the exact same way that the landline worked. They're frustrated and they thought, well, maybe this will never work. Maybe mobile phones aren't going to be a thing. Maybe the technology isn't there. But Lila thought about things a little bit differently. She said, well, just because that's how landline works, that doesn't mean that's how a mobile phone needs to work. And at that time, there was just enough computing power to be able to store all the digits of the phone on the handset. And so what she developed is this idea of storing the numbers first. And then only once all seven or nine or 10 numbers were dialed, then it would send it to the tower. And at that point, it allowed you to connect. It's a small, simple innovation when you think about it. But that one little innovation touches our lives today. If you use a mobile phone, you can thank Lila Olgren for being able to see things just a little bit differently, but then also to take that action and say, I think things could be better and to suggest that approach. But I suppose that brings together why are most things done the way they're done? And it's probably because at some point, that was what the technology that was available then allowed you to do. And because it was then imprinted on everybody to do it that way, we just keep doing it that way. 
guess I'm, I'm just thinking two fantastic disruptors that are classic examples of seeing an industry like that and changing things around are uh, Uber, how to turn a taxi market upside down, and Airbnb, how to mm-hmm. turn a market upside down. It doesn't have to be done the way it's always done. So there's something in that mindset that's, that's naturally entrepreneurial. That's absolutely right. And like, let's look at some social science here because most people tend to prefer the status quo, the way you're saying, the way things have been done. We're not going to say that it was done by people who were foolish. They probably had a good reason for doing it. But then we develop what we call in the policy world, path dependency. So there's work done by Samuelson and Zeckhauser, a couple of behavioral economists, and they identified something quite literally called the status quo bias. They found that, for instance, when giving people the choice of a new healthcare plan, people tend to prefer the one they were on, even when the alternative was empirically better on every conceivable dimension. The longer you were on your existing plan, the more you wanted to keep it. It shows that we as humans tend to be comfortable with what the status quo is, even when it's not ideal. But then, as you mentioned, there's a chance to be entrepreneurial here. Something that I find is teaching at Berkeley. It's obviously a very entrepreneurial place, entrepreneurial campus, but not everyone sees themselves as an entrepreneur. That title can feel a little bit exclusive. It might feel like there's a gender bias towards it, or maybe it feels like, I just don't have that risk tolerance. I'm just not a natural born entrepreneur. But that's why I found that being a change maker is a much more inclusive title, that you don't need to be an entrepreneur, but you probably do need to be entrepreneurial. And that allows you to then think about how you can lead change, how you can be inspired by entrepreneurs, even if you're not the classic disruptor of someone that like Travis Kalanick that's going to upend the entire taxi industry. There's room for all of us to be entrepreneurial, all of us to be change makers, even in smaller ways. So I'm thinking to, to our audience of CFOs, aspiring CFOs, suddenly getting involved in business change, probably have been running a finance function, responsible for churning the numbers out. But that move to CFO suddenly means that they are sitting as right-hand person to the CEO, their strategic business advisor to that CEO, suddenly involved in the middle of, of a change process. Do you think that change skills are something that can be learned fairly, fairly easily? 100%. And that's what the data show in the Changemaker Index, that it absolutely can be learned. But I don't mean to say that it's easy. So you are, if you're stepping into the CFO role, most likely you're being promoted because you are a terrific individual contributor. You know how to do the numbers and you do it really well. But then as you suggest, Kevin, you step into the CFO role and you go, oh, well, <laughs> now what did I get myself into? And now change is part of your portfolio for sure. Now you can see it as a huge challenge or you can see it as an opportunity. Patty Sanchez, for instance, found that over 50% of C-suite teams don't take into account how others will perceive changes when they lead them. So in other words, you sit in the C-suite, you come up with a change, and then you implement it. And half of them don't think about how might someone on the front lines perceive that. And that seems crazy. But if you think about the number of pressures you have as a CFO, you're just trying to keep up. You're trying to do your numbers, trying to oversee people, trying to oversee change. You've got a ton going on. So being really conscious about how you lead change is really important as you make that shift from sort of look, this is my task. It's very clear. I make sure I deliver on it to now dealing with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of ambiguity, and also starting to deal with a bit of power dynamics as you become part of the C-suite. Yeah. I know that there's something that I do if ever I'm leading a workshop or anything on change. That's the very first thing I get people to fold their arms, cross their arms, and then I say, okay, fold them other way. Now, if you're listening to the podcast at the moment, just 
try doing that at the moment. Fold your arms and then unfold them and try and fold them the other way. So if it's left over right, you're going to change to right over left. And once you've done that and you've felt how it feels, well, you've now learned, I think, everything you need to know about business change on the receiving end. It feels very uncomfortable. And the first thing you want to do is swap back to the way it was done before. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's it for me. As you move into the, the leadership topic, as the leader, you, you see all the reasons why it's a great idea. You see where it's going to get you to, but that, you then present it to the rest of the team. And the, the first thing they're going to do is say, whoa, I don't like this. It's not what we're used to. Yeah. So that's right. what, what, what's your advice for dealing with that sort of thing, Alex? The way I start my chapter on this is saying, look, here's how leadership used to work. You used to be able to be in the corner office and used to kind of sit in a room and go, okay, here's our strategy. This is what we're doing. And everyone fall in line. That's no longer happening with flatter hierarchies, more distributed teams, people working from home. Authority used to be something that you could sort of skate by on as a leader. Now, I believe influence is more important than formal authority. So a lot of the book is focused on how do you influence others, even when you can't tell them what to do? How do you inspire them to be part of your change efforts? Now, as we think about influence, at least for me, sometimes you hear about influence, it can feel a little bit sleazy, right? You can hear about like tools of reciprocity. So a classic study where they looked at waiters in a restaurant, this is American context, of course, but giving tips. And they found that if you gave a candy, you would get a higher tip. If you gave two candies, you get an even higher tip. So there's ways you can sort of manipulate people. And that always felt sleazy or wrong to me. Instead, I like thinking about how can you influence for the long term? And a number of these things aren't quick fixes. These are investments. So for instance, investing in relationships, a powerful way to bring people along on your journey. If you don't know who they are, what they care about, you're pretty unlikely to be able to inspire them to be part of your change. Maybe you get lucky. Maybe they say yes. But instead, can you develop relationships over time? And this isn't a quick fix. But I think about, for instance, a friend of mine was recently running a race to raise money for a rare disease that had affected someone in his family. He asked me for support. And in a second, I said, yes, of course I would. But now if you were to ask me to rank the 100 diseases that I'm most passionate about, this disease would not have been top 100. It just isn't one that is particularly on my radar. But because I cared so much about him, of course, I wanted to be part of this change effort. Of course, I wanted to support him. And that's where the power of relationships comes in, that it's not just about being right, not just about having the strategy, but do you have the relationships, the soft skills, the social skills in place that others feel compelled to be part of the change with you? Yeah. Is the big thing about making sure that they, the team are involved in designing the change? It's a great way to get buy-in for sure. So we think as a leader that we have to have all the answers. But again, data show that some of the best leaders are those that develop, uh, show a sense of humility. So we, we, again, we tend to think we want the confident leader that tells us exactly what to do. Actually, the more effective leaders tend to be humble ones. How do you model that? Well, you might present a strategy and ask people to actively disagree with you and say, look, take the other point of view. We, are there places where I'm wrong? Ask for people to call out your blind spots or get more comfortable asking questions. If you have what you are sure is the perfect strategy, can you find ways to ask questions and enroll people in that change so that way they actually develop the change themselves? Lao Tzu says the highest of all rulers are those that when a job is done say, uh, we ourselves have achieved it. That it's not about the leader. It's about finding ways that the entire team feels like they were part of the change effort. So if you can ask great questions and kind of lead them to find the quote correct answer themselves, 
you get so much more buy-in because they'll feel like it's their work. And if they do, great, give them support. And if they don't, well, there's still a chance for you to provide your angle, your perspective as a leader. But it's all about what Morton Hansen calls loosening control without losing control. And I think most leaders would probably do well to loosen a bit of control. Yeah. I'm mindful as well of the the times that might have gone and asked the client, so I'm in a consultancy role, okay, we, we've got to take some cost out of this business now. But we've got to brainstorm some ways of saving some money. Oh, we don't want to save money. Oh, this is going to be bad for the organization. Don't like this. And people go into very much defensive mode and go into, oh, no, I've got to spend this because. Then you flip that around and say, okay, what waste? And you take them through the seven wastes of lean. And you say against each one, right, now, have we got any examples of this waste around here? Suddenly, because you framed the question in a different way, involved them a little bit more, made it, made it a bit more real for them, suddenly you've, you've got a whiteboard that's full of things you can potentially do and potentially change. Yeah. Exactly. And you get some new ideas you may not have thought of. If you were in your conference room exactly. by yourself, maybe you've got some new perspectives now. Mm, yeah. My experience is certainly if you want to know what's, what's wrong in a place, you go ask the people that are working at the coalface. They'll soon give you all the answers and tell you what needs to be done. It's just a matter of having the, the right techniques to draw those answers out. And I think the leader's job is, is much more about teasing out the problems, teasing out of the same people, what do you think the solution is? But then being able to prioritize putting things right rather than suddenly saying, oh, we're going to do this, this, and this, and this is when it's going to happen. This is how and who. That's right. Alex, thinking about any change, when you get that natural feel of, of being uncomfortable, mm. there are going to be the people that are disenfranchised by that change. There's going to be that expert in how do you do things in the old system that everybody goes to their desk to, to get something sorted out. Suddenly, new system, they're not the expert anymore. Deal with those, those sorts of situations. I'm a big fan of a framework that's put together by the change consultancy Nobel. It's N-O-B-L. And what they say is there's three types of people you meet while leading change. You've got the champions, the fence sitters, and the cynics. So the champions, they say these are the people that buy into your cause, buy into your change efforts right away. In that case, you want to delegate, you want to give them authority, you want to let them run with things and be, be your champions. Then you have the fence sitters. Those are the people that are unsure which way to go. And we as leaders are often tempted to spend a lot of time on these fence sitters to try to cajole them, try to convince them, hey, come over to our side. Nobel says, no, don't, don't do that yet. Focus instead on the cynics. And I love the way that they frame the cynics. They say a cynic is just a disappointed idealist. So if you see someone that's really pushing back, perhaps it's because they've been part of change efforts before and they've seen them fail, fall flat on their face, or they feel like, no. I could imagine change, but it's just not going to happen here. I don't want to get my hopes up again. I felt that for myself when I was leading my company, Start Some Good. We were a tech platform, of course. In the early days, we were a scrappy young startup. So uh, we had a couple of part-time tech uh, team, but you know, competing against the likes of Kickstarter or Indiegogo, a far different tech team. And I would get these emails from customers and I could never imagine the vitriol that would come from people that the small little scrappy social enterprise startup didn't have the feature that they wanted or had a bug in it. And I would look at it and my first reaction would be to be defensive and go, well, don't you know, we only have tech working 10 hours a week. Don't you know, we're just two months old. Yes. Yeah. Instead, I thank them 
And I told them that I would give them an update as soon as we had that bug fixed or as soon as we had that feature shipped. What I found is that when they felt like they were listened to, when they felt like I heard their pain, felt their cynicism, and saw it as through the lens of idealism, that they wanted our site to be better, they wanted to use us, they just felt like they couldn't, or maybe they couldn't trust us yet, that once we came through and actually showed them we were listening to them, they became some of our strongest champions. Once you get the champions on board, and of course, the, some of the cynics, we won't get all, but get some cynics, then the fence sitters may come over as well once they see some traction. And so that framework from Nobel has been something I've seen both in my own practical application and something that I teach in my class and book as well. That's an interesting one. I, I can certainly think of situations where try to get people onto the project team that may well have the, the voice of the, the whole organization. That you might call them the barrackroom lawyer or something like that. They're the, the ones that they might not be particularly senior, but they will certainly their their opinion counts for a lot. And if you can manage to convert one of those people into one of your change champions, that is powerful, really powerful. That's absolutely right. When the greatest cynics become your champions, well, that's a signal to a lot of people in the organization to come on board too. Yeah, and. Um, I'm often minded of a, a situation. We were working on a, there were two coal-fired power stations next to each other, both members of the same company, but the cultures on each, each of the two stations are very, very different. And we were running a zero-based budgeting exercise. Station A said, great, fine, we'll get on with this. Yeah, we can do it. Whatever. Station B went there and said, we can't do that around here. That'll not work because that'll not work. Got to the deadline. Station A, who said it was all very easy, failed to deliver. Station B had everything done. Mm -hmm. And we completely misread that pushback. The pushback wasn't from Station A that said, oh, this is all too difficult. We're never going to do it. Actually, we are going to do it. And we're now thinking about all the issues it's going to bring up in doing it. So that there are some questions to ask, some things to think about, some things to resolve. So what appeared at first such a negative response? was actually a positive response. So I think then in terms of the cynics, you need to be careful about that one as well. That sometimes the, the, the people you think are on board aren't, and the people you don't think on board are. It takes a lot of empathy to lead change, to make sure you're checking in with people and really understanding how people are approaching things and not just assuming that just because you think you're right, that everyone gets it, that you're communicating or even over-communicating. Yeah, yeah. so Alex, we, we've talked about the, the three sections of Changemaker, we've, well, sorry, we've talked about two of the three sections. We've talked about mindset. We've talked about leadership, action. So I start the chapter. About. Yeah, I start the chapter uh, presenting the only math equation in the entire book. I have not trained to be a CFO of doing any kind of complicated math. So there's only one math equation in the whole book. Okay. And I explained that your Changemaker impact is the sum of your mindset and your leadership, that sum, multiplied by your action. So put another way, if you have a huge number and you multiply it by zero, the result is still zero. So that tells us it's not enough to just have the mindset, not enough to be able to identify opportunities for change, not enough to just know how to inspire others towards change. You've got to take action. To have an impact as a change maker, it's your mindset and your leadership multiplied by your action. Now, a lot of people get really overwhelmed with the idea of taking change. If we think about change in a corporate context or change in a cultural context, can feel really overwhelming. So I've developed a tool which is called the Changemaker Canvas, inspired by tools like the Business Model Canvas, for instance, 
in working with executives and students around the world, I found that people get really overwhelmed by the scale and the pace of change. And so this canvas breaks a change effort down into small, meaningful, actionable steps. It helps connect the big vision, what's the ambitious change you want to create, all the way to some of the very specifics, like who are the evangelists you need to have on board? Who are some of the key decision makers you need approval from? And so this tool is, I hope, a way that people can say, take change and make it feel really overwhelming and then take it into say, okay, now I've got the strategy. And it moves from a strategy question to simply an execution question. You just got to figure out how to take those steps once you've got it down on paper. Okay, that, that sounds fantastic. So where would I go to find out more about how to put that down on, on paper? Where would mm. I find out the right information about that? Well, you'll, of course, find it in chapter 13 of my book, which is the change. I thought you would say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and that's where I walk through examples of looking at how people from in all kinds of different contexts have led change. So yeah. leading from within companies, leading in society, and then give you some of the building blocks. And you'll also get your own blank canvas as well that if you'd like to, you can fill along as you read the book, as you think about, well, what's the change effort you want to be part of and start working it out for yourself as well. Yeah. So that's interesting. You're starting to talk about all types of change. So what type, some typical person going to read your book, Alex, what, what sort of change would you expect them to be involved in? Well, I take a radically inclusive lens to change making, but I think there, there'll be a couple of common paths. So one is the person who is maybe a first time manager has been in the company for a few years. They find themselves leading people or now with a bit more agency to try to create change, or maybe even people are calling on them to lead change. And they are overwhelmed and they're going, I don't know how to do that. So I hope that they'll get the tools to say, look, this is how you'll lead change, whether that's digitization or leading to a new process, going to a new accounting software, all the things that may seem simple enough from the outside, but you as a practitioner know that's actually really hard to do. So changes that are disrupting the status quo, even in small ways, especially for people that are kind of first-time managers, first-time leaders. Then some will also feel compelled to lead change around sort of big sweeping issues facing our countries and our world. So for instance, I think about one person I worked with who is kind of a mid-level manager who was just super passionate about composting. And he wanted the whole company to start composting. And he kept trying to get them to compost and he kept failing because no one would come along. And so I worked with him to uh, be inspired by the work of Damon Santola at the University of Pennsylvania and other colleagues which is that often we don't need 100% of people on board for a change effort. We only need 25%. The 25% is often that magic tipping point in social conventions. And so I work with them to say, okay, instead of getting all 200 people at the firm to all start composting every meal, let's find 50. Let's find 50 champions, get them to start composting, and then enroll them in the effort. And so in his case, he was super passionate about composting. And by working with a smaller group at first, he was able to create that change from within. Now, some change will be grandiose, some change will be huge, but oftentimes change is the composting guy, or it's the person switching the accounting software. And that may seem like those changes could be easy, but I know that they're not. And so I hope that this tool and this book will help you feel a bit more confidence in yourself and in your ability to lead positive change from wherever you are. So fantastic. We'll make sure there's a link to the book in the show notes, Alex. It's available from, if you're listening to this on the day the show goes out, it's available brand new today, first time on the, the bookshelf. But Alex, you talked a little bit about your, your background as a social entrepreneur and arriving at Barclay and run, running classes in change, but 
How did you get involved in change and becoming an expert in this field to start with? Well, what's so fun about this is that in many ways, the change maker field is one we're developing as we speak. I'm, of course, grounded in change leadership and the classic work of Cotter, but also I'm kind of building this as, as we go, which is a, a fun thing to be doing. But as I look back on my whole career, I didn't know it at the time, but really it's all been all about leading positive change. I guess the big aha moment that I had was when I was living in India for a bit and I was working with a local grassroots social enterprise. And, you know, before that point, I was in public policy school. And so I thought that all change had to come from big institutions. Most of my friends would go work for the World Bank, the UN, ministries, departments, and so on. And there on those dirt fields in Ahmedabad, India, I realized that there's actually change makers all around the world. There's change makers of all types, all kinds of people that want to lead positive change. But there's just too many barriers getting in the way. And so inspired by that insight, I've really dedicated my whole career to thinking about how can I tear down some of those barriers with Start Some Good, the social enterprise I co-founded. The barrier we identified was financial capital, that it's never easy to raise money, but it's especially hard to get that first risk capital you need to get started. You can't raise money until you've proven your impact, but how do you prove your impact until you have the money to actually launch something? So we tried to change the way that local and small grassroots organizations got started. Sometimes people on our site would raise 100,000 US dollars. Sometimes they would raise 300 US dollars. Didn't matter to us. We wanted people to have the funds they needed to get going with their changemaker efforts. From there, I pivoted to running an incubator in uh, Scandinavia. And there I started learning that it's not enough to just know what to do, that the leadership skills really matter. We had the privilege of selecting the top five out of 500 ideas every year. So a 1% acceptance rate into our incubator, which is a great privilege. Very tough. I took that privilege very seriously. What I found is that we would select these incredible innovators, these incredible entrepreneurs. And I would, of course, help them with their revenue models. I would, of course, help them with measuring impact. But oftentimes, what I was really helping them with is leadership challenges, that they had just hired someone and realized they weren't the right fit. How did they then fire that person? Or realizing that they had grown way too quickly and they needed to bring on a staff and they had no idea if the staff was on board with their changes. Those were the challenges I found myself helping these individuals with. So I realized that leadership really makes all the difference. And then from there, I came back home to the San Francisco Bay Area and joined UC Berkeley Haas, where I got to start teaching this class. And I've learned so much from teaching everywhere from 18-year-old undergraduates all the way to 50-year-old seasoned execs all about change. And so it's this wonderful sort of flywheel effect that I come up with my own experience. I grounded in empirical research and data. I work with executives, get new case studies, and get to teach those case studies to the class again. So it goes again and again. One of the values of the book of being a change maker is student always. And I very much consider myself a student always, that I'm always learning about this as we go. I've got my ideas. I'm so thrilled to put them down in a book for all of you. But I'm also constantly learning and growing myself, and I hope we can all learn together as we go. So, Alex, is there a second book in you? <laughs> I think I need a nap before I do a second <laughs> book. So we'll see, maybe in a few years. I do think that there's so much to say to support change makers. But for now, I'm just delighted today being launch day that we've got the book out there. And so I think I'll enjoy just the feeling of having this first book out and talking with a lot of people, as many as I can, about becoming a change maker, and then check back in with me in a, in a couple of years. Yeah. So, see, we're, we're recording this a few weeks ahead of launch day, but uh, what are you planning to actually do on, on launch day? 
Oh, well, I'm thrilled that UC Berkeley Haas is really supportive of the book. And so we'll do a big launch event on campus and everything. I don't want to make this about me. I want this to be about change makers and about the ideas. So we'll do a big panel for the entire, for the entire school where I will showcase the work of three alumni of my class, show how they've made positive change. One is an Olympic swimmer in Great Britain, talking about how she became a leader on her team, how she found her voice as a change maker. One individual found her way through kind of traditional startups to advocate for change from within an existing company. And then the other created his own social enterprise to better support Black students at UC Berkeley and other campuses around the country. So by highlighting their stories, the different ways that they've led change from athletics to traditional corporate environments to social change, to show that this isn't about me, but this is about how each of us can lead positive change from wherever we are. Alex, that is a great cross-section of people. The diversity involved there, just in terms of, of gender, of ethnicity, and of types of change, that just shows that this is applicable absolutely everywhere. That's right. I'm a firm believer that each and every one of us can be a change maker and that change making is a team sport. So our companies, our communities, and our world need each of us to lead positive change from wherever we are. I like that. Change is a team sport. That's a powerful quote. Team, but I, I like the sport. That, that implies that it's, it's not something to be afraid of, but it, it's something that, yeah, to be successful, you've got to put a lot of effort in, but it's also enjoyable. Let's hope they make it so. Absolutely. Alex, huge, huge thanks for being this week's guest on The Grow CFO Show. Wishing you every success with the book launch. Kevin, such a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for your terrific questions and so wonderful to connect with your community. Thanks for the opportunity. Brilliant. Thank you.